Hello and welcome everyone. I am Jake Wurzak and this is Masters of Moments. This podcast features conversations with the top entrepreneurs and business leaders around hospitality, real estate, investing, and company building. We explore the ideas, strategies, and approaches that brought them to where they are today. Hear the insights, behind-the-scenes secrets, and methods you can't find anywhere else. This podcast is for you if you are a seasoned investor, an upstart entrepreneur, or someone looking to break into the real estate and hospitality investing world. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at jwerzak on Twitter. And if you have enjoyed this show, I'd be incredibly grateful if you followed us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever podcast platform you listen to. We record on video, so you can always find all of our episodes on YouTube and be sure to subscribe. Thank you so much for joining me and enjoy the show. My conversation today is with Dan Lesser, CEO and founder of LW Hospitality Advisors. LWHA is the leading hospitality valuation and advisory service focused on hotels. And they help people figure out how to make a hotel investment. If you are a seasoned operator and professional, they tell you where you might go wrong, where you can add value, where you can asset manage a little bit more fiercely. They even came up with a predictive analytics software. We discussed so much about hospitality investing in this episode, the basics, the nuts and bolts. We go into where new owners often make mistakes, what Dan is advising people in today's environment, how to think about hospitality investing from multiple different hats and approaches. Please enjoy my conversation today with Dan Lesser. All right. I thought a good place to start would be, I want to kind of dig into this a little bit because the hotel industry is so niche. It's a part of real estate, but people tend to be so passionate about it. And a lot of people in the hotel industry either go to Cornell or go to some fancy hotel school in Switzerland, whether they're on the investment side or the asset management side or the operation side. So maybe you could use that as like an intro to tell everyone how you got into the hospitality business. Sure, I'd be happy to. And thank you for for having me. It's great to be here with you. When I grew up, I I was always very uh, very entrepreneurial and had a, a, a really strong street smart type of instinct. Academics were never really my thing. And I'd come across a book. This is a long time ago. The title of the book was Your Career in Hotels and Motels. Back then, there were motels. It was written by a gentleman named Herbert Witzke. And the book really had a profound effect on me. Again, I was very entrepreneurial. I knew how to hustle and make money at a very young age, whether it was raking leaves, blowing snow, delivering newspapers, that kind of thing. And when I picked up this book, you have to remember, too, that this was pre-internet and the world was much, much bigger. Uh, We're talking about the 1970s. I'm only 19 years old. The math works. Don't worry about it. And this book uh, really inspired me. It, It had in the middle of the book about 10 pages of black and white pictures of hotels all around the world. And between reading the book and the pictures, I was like, this is pretty amazing. And I had gotten interested in uh, Cornell University's hotel school, and I also got interested in a uh, in the hotel school in, in Lausanne, Switzerland, that you referred to, the Ecole Taille in Lausanne. And I was in tenth grade, and at the time, there was a four year waiting list if you were accepted at the Ecole Taille in Lausanne. So if you were accepted, it was four years into the future. The timing worked out great because as an American the Swiss requirement to equal a high school education in Switzerland at that point was a U.S. high school education plus two years of university in the United States. So I was in 10th grade. I had 11 and 12 to do. And then I, I, I planned on doing two, two years of university here in the States. I was accepted. Two years later, uh, when I'm graduating high school, I applied to Cornell. Again, because of my terrific academic record, they didn't spend a whole lot of time on my, my application. I ended up going to uh, attending Baruch College, which is part of the City University of New York system. It used to be fondly referred to as UCLA, University on the Corner of Lexington Avenue. (laughs) I did two years there, which was the requirement to go to Switzerland. I got cold feet as we were approaching the two-year mark, and I applied to Cornell one more time. 
And once again, no, no go, which was fine. It was the best thing that ever happened to me. I ended up going to Lausanne. It was an incredible experience from a cultural perspective, from a language perspective. I love to ski and I did a lot of skiing there. And I ended up uh, uh, doing a year there in what was called at the time the Cour de Cuisine. So I learned how to, how to cook. And to this day, I've never met anybody who makes better hard-boiled eggs than I do. I attended a, a year school. I also uh, served what was called a stage, which was a experiential work effort at a uh, hotel in Montreux, Switzerland. And it was interesting uh, when I had applied to Cornell the second time and they turned me down. I was like, okay, I'm heading off to Lausanne. And they were like, whoa, tell us more about that, which I did. And it was interesting. I was told, well, you know what? Go to Lausanne, see how that works out. And if you reapply a third time, wink, wink, we think you might get in. Again, best thing that ever happened to me because I reapplied to Cornell after completing a year in Lausanne, and miraculously, they accepted me. Even more miraculously, I graduated with a degree. And then I worked for, after I graduated Cornell's hotel school, I worked for Hilton for a number of years at the New York Hilton Hotel, 2,100-room hotel, amazing place to actually learn the hotel business from an operational perspective. I worked in every sub-department within food and beverage. Then I did every sub-department within the front office. Ultimately, I got kicked over to the uh, catering sales office. And I came to the realization that as much as I love the hotel business, and I still do to this day, I decided I did not want to make a career in hotel operations for a whole number of reasons. And I was fortunate to to segue into the real estate consulting valuation operational advisory side. And I was Steve Rushmore's first hire when he founded HVS in 1980-81. And then I made a couple of, of, uh, of stops before forming LW Hospitality Advisors about 13 years ago. We can talk about those stops in between. But that's how I got into the hotel business. What's changed, I don't know, let's say over the past 30 or 40 years in the hotel business, but in operations specifically, and then also in the investment side? Well, clearly technology has brought all sorts of opportunities on both sides, operationally and on the investment side. When you asked that question, the first thing that really came into my mind was candidly uh, Smith Travel Research, now known as STR, and how it created transparency within the sector. When I started in the early 80s, you know, we used to go around and talk to hotel operators to find out what kind of occupancy and ADR they were achieving. And, you know, the rule was if you ask 10 people the same question, right, and eight or nine give you the same answer, you probably have a good feel of what the answer is. That was one way. Literally another way was at night driving around and counting lights and windows at, you know, eight o'clock at night. When STR came out and then technology, you know, morphed that available data, transparency became much much clearer. And and that's, I think, been a huge, a huge change for the sector. So for those that aren't fully aware, in the hotel business, it's very different from other commercial real estate where you can just go on CoStar and really see what the leases are, see a lot of information about the tenants. The hotel world, even with Star, but Star has helped, remains pretty opaque. So then let me ask this part. Where do you think that side of the business is going to go in the next 10 years? I think technology is going to continue to enhance transparency on the one hand. On the other hand, I think it's a blessing for professional service providers like me that uh, there is not uh, as much transparency (laughs) as there are are with other asset classes because it, it keeps me in business candidly. And you know, we, 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 do, we, we look at thousands of properties a year, and so we have an incredible database. Obviously, the data is confidential, right? And, and we cannot share and we do not share specific, you know, information about specific assets. But we have tremendous data, not only in our head, but also the ability to aggregate uh, averages, you know, for defined competitive sets, defined competitive Submarkets, et cetera, et cetera. I want to go back to your time in Switzerland. And as you look back, what do you think the most impactful thing was that you learned that just stuck with you 
about the business to this day? That the hotel business is, is a people business, always has been, always will be. I learned the, the, the concept that the guest is always right, even if they're wrong. And I've carried that over into my professional practice. You know, the client is always right, even if they're wrong. It's a service business, the hotel business. And it's no different than a professional service business like what I do today. And so that is really something that came home very clearly for me while I was working in Switzerland. In Switzerland, the training of a fine Swiss hotelier is really what Lausanne was known for at that point in time. People today, though, pay you for really good advice. How do you balance giving them the cold, hard truth with with also maybe the customer's always right, telling them what they want to hear? How, how does that work in your current role? That's a great question. So I did say the customer is always right and the customer is always right. But that doesn't mean that the customer is always right about our findings and opinions, right? And I am known... And I believe that's why many folks seek me out for, I tell it like it is. I don't beat around the bush. I have a reputation for, for telling it like it is, whether you like it or not, that, that's, that's it. If the client is complaining about some level of the service in terms of timing or delivery, or, you know, they don't like working with a particular uh, associate, again, the client's always, uh, you know, is, is always right, even, even if they're wrong. But when it comes to findings, and opinions, again, that's what people are paying me for. And yes, there are folks out there who will tell clients what they want to hear, but they're they're not dialing my number if that's the case. So the hotel business, in my opinion, probably yours, is the hardest real estate asset class because it's an operating business and it's real estate. When you talk to people about investing in hospitality, how do you get them over the fear and concern around the operating business component versus other types of commercial real estate? Great question and very on point. The only thing I would modify in your question is I, I, I don't really run across folks who necessarily approach it as being fearful, but rather they just don't know. And we do a, a, a lot of consulting and advisory work for folks who we very respectfully refer to as newbies to the hotel space. Smart, sophisticated folks who have access to money or, you know, have money themselves. Uh, they know and understand real estate, finance, markets, etc. But they don't know much about hotels. And invariably, one of two things happens. You get the group that approaches the first hotel situation as, well, it's just another food group of commercial real estate. And they quickly find out that's not the case for a whole host of reasons. First and foremost, there are no credit-worthy long-term tenancies. You're leasing up guest rooms every single night. And with technology being what it is today, pricing of those guest rooms literally changes by the nanosecond. And as you know, in a rising market, that's a great thing, right? In a down market, it can kill you. Uh, and then when you think about a full-service hotel that has other revenue streams aside from putting heads in beds, Right, the notion of selling food and beverage and other retail, other other income streams—it's very different than putting heads in beds. And then take that further: the expense side associated with putting heads in beds is very different than running F and B operations. So invariably, these folks who initially approach it as it's just another food group of commercial real estate—they they they make a mistake, and they either find me or or I find them. It's like, can you help us undo this mistake? Well, no, but we can probably help you from stepping in it one more time. And then there are the other, the other folks who know what they know and know what they don't know and recognize that, as you said, it's a, it's a business married up with bricks and mortar real estate, and it's very complicated business. And again, they either find us or we find them and do a tremendous amount of sort of problem solving and strategic thinking on how to, how to navigate. Again, I've really never run into folks who are afraid, but more sort of just not very knowledgeable. So I'm working with somebody right now who is a very successful entrepreneur, made money in several different industries, and ended up, he wanted to get into the hotel business, ended up buying a, uh, a, pro a hotel property on an auction platform. 
and didn't really know what they were buying and sort of recognized that they were committed. And so they were referred to me and I've been advising them and the deal is going to be closing any day now. And, you know, they, they clearly recognized that uh, there probably was a rookie mistake in terms of buying an asset on an auction platform as a first go in the hotel business. But they're actually okay with it. And the, the attitude is, you know what, just help us not lose money and help us on the next one make money, which is an interesting, you know, interesting way of looking at it. Working with another group, actually, that high net worth family that ended up buying a couple of hotels in and around New York City that currently house uh, migrants. And so there's, you know, contracts that are in place to house these migrants. They did not buy these assets on hotel economics at all. They paid a lot of money for these assets. When you compare it to the income coming in from the migrants, it's, it looks good, but they know that at some point it's not, it's not, that's going away. Whether it's a month, a year, three years, nobody really knows. And so I'm advising them on what it's going to look like when that's over, because again, they don't know much about hotels. I want to go back to the auction. I think this is a very common thing that a lot of up-and-coming entrepreneurial folks in the hospitality business that either have a little bit of money and maybe are raising capital or have a lot of money and are going to do this themselves. So can you hang on that deal a little bit more and without breaching any confidentiality, like walk us through how you would advise someone buying something through an auction, what to look for in the beginning process, in the bidding process, and then post what are the kind of things that you've been seeing and experiencing and where do people most often make mistakes when acquiring a hotel? So that's a two-part question. Let's deal with the first part about advising someone about purchasing an asset on an auction platform. Candidly, I've never done that before. This group already had won the bid and then found me. I'm not sure I would really recommend buying a hotel asset on an auction platform. If it was me, I, I can't say I would actually do that. So why? Because to, to me, knowing the business, knowing what I know, maybe I'd have a little bit of comfort, but it's very different than buying a deeply discounted office building with 30% vacancy where you know you have to just fill it up. There's a lot that goes into the operation that just wouldn't be able to be found out through the auction process, I would think. That, that's, that's true. I mean, there's a certain amount of due diligence that's provided and, and that's it. And when you win the auction, you, your money goes hard, right? As opposed to, you know, being selected and you get a, a you know, a, a formal due diligence period before you have any hard money up. You know, I, I, I some of the mistakes I've seen, I've worked with folks who have tied up assets and had hard money up and not recognizing that there's a long-term brand management encumbrance on the property as opposed to just a license affiliation with a third-party independent operator who could be replaced if need be. As you know, there's, there's a big difference there. So, I mean, that's a classic example of a mistake, if you will, right? And candidly, you know, these folks thought they got a really good deal on a per pound basis. Uh, and it did sound like that initially until you dug into it and you realized, like, wait a second, a lot of the economics are going to this brand operator. Hence, on a per pound basis, it's it is what it is. So as you know, you know, all things being equal, a hotel unencumbered by a, a long term management cre- agreement versus a hotel that is encumbered the unencumbered generally ends up with higher proceeds. Is there a cap rate percentage that typically goes along with that that you see? Like, is it a 75 basis point discount, 100 points, if it's franchise unencumbered in addition to management unencumbrance, or is it totally all over the place? It's all over the place. And, And I'm always very hesitant to talk about cap rates in general because, you know, listen, hotels are are all about sort of selling the dream, right? That's what hotel intermediaries do. They sell the dream. And I've never in all my years come across a hotel owner and or operator who didn't think they could do better than the prior regime. And so 
Always, exactly. And, and, and you know, the way these things are bought and sold and, you know, it, 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 it doesn't really matter where and what it is. It's generally on some sort of a future outlook, whether it's a five, three, five, seven, ten year discounted cash flow. You know, that's how institutional grade real estate is is valued. Once a value is determined, then you'll back into what an implied cap rate is and just sort of as a test of reasonableness. But there's no shortage of, of assets that have sold with no income and good per pound numbers at a zero cap rate, right? And so my point is that I've never really met a hotel investor who says, oh, that's a 8.6. No, it's an 8.5 cap. That's just not the way it works. But yet everybody talks about cap rates. Everyone talks about cap rates and everyone talks about what you bought it at, what you sold it at, and that's what you base your exit off of. How do you think about brand managers? Because we have a management company, we're vertically integrated. We have some investments where we have a brand managing, but I want to know from you, like, is there a place for Hilton and Marriott or Hyatt to be managing a hotel? Or is it really best left to vertically integrated operators or third-party managers? It depends on the asset and where it is. There are some brands and you know some assets that just, if they're going to be affiliated with a certain brand, they have to be brand managed, right? Four Seasons, right? You, you can't license the Four Seasons name. I don't think there's a black and white answer to your question. You know, I would say, generally speaking, the, the notion of having a license agreement with an independent hotel operator comes back to that whole concept of unencumbered versus encumbered on the back end, right? And it's not that one is better than the other, but the arena of buyers for institutional hotel real estate for assets that are unencumbered by management, the arena of buyers is larger, generally speaking, than encumbered assets. Again, it's not that one is better than the other. You've seen a lot of different deals, and I'm really interested to know from you what you think the characteristics are of a really good hospitality investor. The characteristics of a really good hospitality investor, I would say number one is checking ego at the door. The hotel industry is a little bit notorious for attracting all sorts of ego capital. You know, those who don't fall in love with real estate, I think, tend to come out ahead. And listen, I'm a big believer in you, you make your money on the buy, right? So the key is to acquire at the right basis. And smart hotel investors are very, very focused on that. And listen, yes, it is a forward look. There's no question about it. But I, I think, you know, really just... Well, number one, I think being focused on the sector is also really, really important. There are lots of successful hotel investors who also play in other sectors. You know, that, that's not an issue. But generally, I would say that if they do that, then they have a group in-house. And if not in-house, then they have a third-party advisor who is focused on the sector. The hotel sector is so different than retail, office, residential. And you really need to understand the unique specialized aspects of, well, as we talked about earlier, hotels are going business concerns that are married up with bricks and mortar real estate, right? You, you look at a 10-story office building with 10 tenants that have 10-year leases, right? And the building's fully leased up. Well, then you can just figure out, okay, here's my income, right? And I know what my expenses are going to be. There's really not that much to it. Again, that's not the way hotels work. So, I think those that are really focused on the space, I, I, I think that's really important to be laser focused on the lodging sector. It's very dynamic. It's changing all the time. And it's, it's, it's hard to keep abreast of all these changes and the moving dynamics if you're also looking at office buildings and shopping centers oh, and hotels. It's, so, And that's why the rich guys and gals call you when they want to check their ego out the door, but they still want that oceanfront trophy asset? I hope so. <laughs> so when looking back, let's say for at the beginning of a new real estate cycle right now, when you look back over the previous few cycles, what 
hospitality deals or strategies come to mind as really stand out that you think potentially could be replicated now at the beginning of this new real estate cycle? I like that question. And actually, I'm going to answer it in that there is a, a transaction that comes to mind that was done not that long ago. And to some extent, the ship may have already started to sail because, yes, we are at the beginning of a new cycle. But so the Sheraton in Times Square that MCR purchased not that long ago, big, big hotel right across from the New York Hilton Hotel, they bought that asset for $200,000 a room. Now, on an aggregate basis, because it's such a large hotel, it was $373 million, if I recall correctly, which is a lot of money. And then there's the issue of figuring out what do we do with it, right? I think that's a great transaction to look to in terms of at $200,000 a room, you couldn't replace that hotel for multiples of that amount of money. By the way, I'm not suggesting that if it was a vacant piece of dirt that you would build that hotel the way it is today. But the fact is, it's it's a massive property on a major avenue in midtown Manhattan that sold at a, at a fraction of replacement cost. And even if for some reason the buyer can't figure out what to do with it, I just don't see a whole lot of downside at $200,000 a room for that asset. So the way I look at it is, is they sort of bought an option, right? If they figure it out, great, and I'm sure they will figure it out. But if they don't, how much less could it be possibly worth at some point in the future than $200,000 a room? So I hope that answers the question. Yeah, well, let's break into it a little bit because you know the operating nature of the hotel could make it unprofitable. Like maybe there's union, maybe there's long-term employees, maybe the wages are high, maybe no one wants to stay in a Sheridan, maybe the CapEx cost to renovate it puts you at a basis of $300,000 a key. How do you think MCR mitigates some of those concerns going forward despite buying it at a great basis? Well, I'm not sure I really want to get into details like that because that's not in the public domain. Obviously, the, you know whatever I've said thus far is in the public domain. But, you know, you mentioned uh, management. I believe Marriott was managing that hotel. It was owned by Host. And I believe MCR now manages it themselves. Again, vertical integration, you know, under a Sheraton flag. So listen, again, at the $200,000 basis, you know, the union's already there, right? That's not a a new factor. Granted, there's a new contract that's going to be coming up in the near term. The condition of the property, I mean, that was well known when they acquired it. Candidly, I, I only see potential upside at that basis. I don't see a whole lot of downside. And Tyler's done great things and he has an amazing portfolio and he manages himself, which is another competitive advantage that he can weigh in on. And what's interesting too about MCR is is they, they within the hotel sector, they play in all sorts of different segments, right? Select service, big hotels like, like the Sheraton, independent hotels like the High Line. I mean, they have a very broad, diverse lodging portfolio, which is a bit unusual because, you know, usually I I run into investors who are, if they're focused on the lodging sector, they tend to be focused on a particular segment within the lodging sector. And MCR has done a pretty good job at, at sort of keeping a wide horizon open to them. I mean, the TWA hotel, talk about out of the box. I mean, that's way out of the box. It's pretty cool. The Highline Hotel, they've got some great stuff. So they bought that from Host and a lot, There's, I think there's going to be a lot of REIT transactions going on. The valuations on the REIT side are much lower than probably the asset values. So we may see some transactions coming from REITs to independent operators. Everyone always talks about if REITs are buying, it's hard to compete. How do you view hotel REITs amongst the landscape when you're talking to your other investors and your other clients? I mean, it depends where we are in, in the cycle, and it also depends on where we are in terms of cost of capital, right? I think what you just said is is very much illustrated by the recent announcement of uh, Hersha becoming privatized, right? That falls exactly with you know with what you said. And I think we're probably going to see a bit more of that in the in the near term. 
Are there any benefits from buying from a REIT that you've been able to observe that they're actually a great transactional partner? Depends on the specific deal. I don't, I don't think that there's any blanket answer to that. I want to go now to what you are seeing that is really exciting because a lot of deals come through your desk. You see a lot of new opportunities. Are you seeing any trends out there? Well, not trends. Are you seeing any shifts in perhaps how people are investing in hospitality that was different from the prior 10 years? You, you know, again, I, I think as transparency becomes clearer with available uh, public information on the sector, hotels have become much more uh, accepted as an institutional asset class. And, you know, look at where we are today. Hotels are a favored asset class when you compare them to office buildings and multifamily, right? Who, who could have ever imagined that that would be the case, right? Hotels used to be a poor stepchild to everybody else. And today, hotels are very, very desirable uh, investment. And you have groups out there now that is, I believe Simon Properties, who's in the retail sector, they're now getting into the hotel business, right? So I think that speaks volumes about, you know, a major, a major, major shift in terms of how hotels are perceived and how they have become institutionally uh, very accepted. And I think Blackstone's probably led the charge on that. It's really interesting when you look at Blackstone over 20, 25 years, they don't necessarily, I don't, this is my humble opinion, I don't think they time markets. I think they time deals. Because when you look back over 20, 25 years, I don't think there's a period of time that they were never buying and selling at the same time, which I think says a lot. Uh, you know, I, I get the question all the time, is this a good time to buy? It's, it's a good time to buy if you find the right deal at the right basis. And I think, again, Blackstone tends to exemplify that they know how to buy low and sell high. They have an inc incredible track record of doing it. And it's, it's, it's driven, I believe, not just by uh, market fundamentals, but also in asset fundamentals. And it all begins with what's their basis to begin with in a deal. I said it earlier. I believe you make your money on the buy, not on the exit. So how do you know if you're buying it right? You don't know until you until you exit, right? And, and let's face it, there are extenuating circumstances that one cannot anticipate. I mean, somebody who closed an acquisition January 1st of 2020, right, wasn't feeling really good on April 1st, 2020. Now, when we look back, it actually worked out kind of okay, right, if you held on, but it could have easily gone the other way, right? There are no shortage of investors out there who look at uh, hotel holding periods, investment periods, three to five years, which can be a dicey proposition. Now, don't get me wrong. Lots of folks have made a lot of money underwriting three to five-year holds, but it could be tricky, right? Again, think about the group that closed January 1st, 2020. They were, were not feeling good about their three to five-year underwriting on April 1st. Today, they're feeling okay, right? They, they, it kind of wor all worked out, but it could have just as easily not worked out. I'm a big believer in hotels are fundamentally long-term holds. And I think every hotel investor should underwrite to a minimum 10-year holding period. And I want to underscore underwrite. Doesn't mean that they have to hold it for 10 years. They just need to be ready, willing, and able, if need be, to hold on to it for 10 years. So if a capital event opportunity bubbles up in year two, three, four, five, what have you, where you can bake in some significant gains, well, sure, you're gonna do that, right? If that does not occur and there was some calamity that you know didn't, didn't sit well with the investment, you have more time to, to work it out. What are the major considerations when underwriting a 10-year hold versus underwriting a five-year hold? Like what happens in that five to 10-year period that either people don't appreciate, people forget, or you advise people always to think about? Well, my, my point was that, listen, when you do it, when you do a 10-year projection, generally, it's a, it, what investors do is they factor in several years building up to what's called a stabilized level of operation. So whether it's year three, four, or five, let's assume for a moment it's year five, 
when you do a 10-year discount of cash flow, you take that stabilized year and just inflate the bottom line by inflation, right? The purpose of doing the 10-year discount of cash flow and looking at this assumed holding period, again, is worst case scenario if the opportunity is not there after five years to bake in gains, that you have another, and let's say you, you, you're going to lose money, right? If you have to sell, funds coming to a termination and you have to exit, right? If you have that cushion of additional five years, at least there's an opportunity to step back and analyze, is it worth holding on to this and throwing more money? And what does it look like five years in the future for the next five years? I mean, let's call a spade a spade. None of us are that good that we can predict what's going to happen an hour from now, never mind a year from now, right? If you would have told somebody on September 10th what was going to happen the next day, they would have said, you're crazy. And yet it happened. What I find interesting is that if you were to mention that to somebody again today, they'd still think you're crazy. And yet it happened how many years ago? Life throws curveballs, right? I think if people would have said that, you know, a global pandemic was going to be on the horizon. Actually, I vividly remember when in January, in February, we heard it. Oh, it's over there. It's over there. And then guess what? It came here. I mean, who, who could have ever imagined? So, and because of the daily leasing and the constant repricing of guest rooms, hotels are very sensitive to these, these types of unforeseen circumstances, good, bad, or indifferent. But in hotels, I guess what I'm getting at in the five to 10 year period, one of the main differences in hotels is that you have furniture, you have f and you have a certain level of standard that you need to maintain versus another real estate class. So don't you have to like figure that you're going to have to reinvest more capital in the asset over that longer hold period than you would if you were underwriting a shorter deal? And I, I guess you have to think about that in the underwriting, right? No question about it. Absolutely. And, and listen, it's been it's been demonstrated uh, factually. It's not an opinion that reserve for replacements, whether it's 3%, 4%, 5% of gross, right? After seven years, for example, it's never going to be enough. And so you're going to take the reserve amount, but then a check needs to be written to make to make up for the difference. And yes, that absolutely has to get baked into an into the analysis irrespective of whether you're going to hold for 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 five years less or more, because if the property is brand new, day one, and you hold on to it for seven years, we'll, we'll, and then you want to exit, well, guess what? It's good. It's going to need CapEx. And so that's going to get factored in, whether it's in the price, right? Whether the buyer pays it or the seller pays it, that's sort of like negotiating a uh, a brokerage commission. Right. Okay. Theoretically, you know, the seller pays the brokerage commission, but ultimately all, all these numbers need to get factored into the basis. I keep saying that over and over the basis in the deal. Well, we're going to buy a deal together and we're going to buy it at a good price, maybe. Or you'll advise me. Perfect. I want to talk about capital inflows in hospitality investing. Where are you? Are you seeing any shifts? Are you seeing any trends happening? Are you seeing new people come in that weren't here? five or 10 years ago? And then what does that look like going forward? And maybe you can answer it in the context of folks raising capital for deals like sponsors. So absolutely, there are there are new folks coming into the space. When I, when I look back, I, I think there are always new folks coming into the space. And as hotels have become, as I said earlier, an accepted institutional investment class, you're getting more and more institutional investors, but you're also getting lots of family offices. I see foreign money. I don't think it really ever disappeared, but obviously with COVID, you know, foreigners weren't able to come here to, you know, touch real estate, but they're coming back with a vengeance. You know, listen, the United States, like anything else in life, we have our challenges. There's no question about it, but it's, it still is the greatest country in the world. It's the safest country in the world. It's where everybody wants to be. It's where capital is looking for a safe haven to place money and hotels are a, a very you know desirable asset class that you know a lot of folks haven't played in before and then you add the eco equation into it right so yeah i, I and, and i mentioned two examples earlier of folks that i'm working with the, these are newbies to the hotel space and i will tell you we've been very fortunate in, in developing quite a practice servicing these folks they need help and Many of them know that uh, from the get-go, and the ones who don't know it, they make bad mistakes and then and then figure out, I need help. 
On the debt side, are you finding that lenders, you know, obviously we're in a weird time now, but that lenders are placing a higher sensitivity around a sponsor's experience versus other types of real estate? Well, I only play in the lodging sector, so I can't really speak about other asset classes, but your question is right on in terms of, yes, sponsorship is extremely important. There's no question about that. Always has been, always will be. But, you know, obviously the deal in and of itself, I mean, if if you can't pass the smell test in terms of quality of sponsorship, you're never going to get to quality of the investment. So, yes, it is absolutely imperative that sponsorship have a, a, a good track record and an impeccable reputation. Like, like what have you been most surprised about that's consistently happened in hospitality, whether it's about the deal, the real estate, or the investor, whatever it may be? I think we talked a little bit about this. It's folks who come into the space who who don't know much about the hotel business and sort of getting getting past that, right? I can't begin to tell you how many times I've run across folks, you know, I want to buy a hotel. Well, what kind of hotel? I want to buy a hotel. What kind of hotel? Where? What? I, I want New York. I mean, every day I get calls, but I want to buy a hotel in New York. The, the I hate to say that use the term the level of ignorance, but on some on some level, yes, it is a level of ignorance when it comes to knowledge of the hospitality business. But by the way, I say thank God every day because that's what keeps me in business. So the surprise is smart, sophisticated folks who are successful who sometimes do silly things and approach approach an opportunity in a in a uh, unsophisticated manner without recognizing that they are i found the best way that we've seen to mitigate that is to pair a seasoned sponsor with that person who has that desire and maybe the capital or the location but too often you see the person that wants to do it alone that's not from hospitality just get wiped out or struggles along the way until they find the right path. No question about it. No question about it. I've been surprised many times. <laughs> I remember working on a deal on a property up in Canada. It was a significant transaction. These folks had negotiated a uh, management cr- contract with a uh, with a major brand family. And I forget how they found us slapped down this 200-page document. So what do you think about this? It was mind-boggling. It was the most one-sided agreement you could possibly imagine. By the way, these were very sophisticated, successful investors. Uh, They hadn't executed the agreement, but they had already gone down the road of negotiating with this major brand, a management contract, and it was a completely one-sided agreement. And I get it. You know, we live in a capitalist environment and, you know, management companies, hotel companies, you know, they, they like dealing with newbies to the hotel space. And if they can negotiate a very favorable deal for themselves, why not? Right. That's the way capitalism works. But I have been surprised at, at the level of unsophistication and how far some of these folks get before realizing if they haven't formally made a mistake yet how far they get before realizing like, wait a second. I mean, just think about the deal that I just described, you know, walking back that transaction, they already like negotiated. And then we came in and tried to undo that. It's much harder to do that than starting from the get go with, Hey, don't tell me that because I know, right. I've seen 10 of your other deals. So don't tell me you don't do X, Y, and Z, right. The newbie to the hotel space can't do that. So that has surprised me. And it's it, it's happened many, many times and it continues to happen. So if you have an owner that's going to sign up a management agreement, maybe it's with a luxury management company, what are some of the important critical items that that owner needs to think about from the ownership standpoint when negotiating with that luxury operator? I mean, listen, there are, there are a number of things that come to mind. I think alignment of interests is number one. You know, the old days when a hotel management company would get 5% of gross off the top and 20% of uh, gross operating profit, right, which is income before any fixed charges. I mean, interests are not aligned when it comes to a structure like that. 
you don't see that often anymore, right? But getting the economics structured so that interests are aligned. In my mind, an incentive, excuse me, a base management fee should theoretically compensate an operator for the cost of, of doing the uh, service offering that they provide. I don't think that they should really make profits off that base number. I think their profits should be on a defined, mutually agreed upon defined net income, whether it's net income before debt service, after debt service, after debt service, some prep return on equity, what have you. But that's interest of alignment uh, is, is, I just, you know, I think absolutely key. You know, the next thing that comes to my mind too is, uh, again, when I run into folks that are fairly new to this, they hear the term key money. What about key money? What about key money? And they don't realize that key money tends to be some of the most expensive money you can get out there. So, yeah, sure, it sounds great that they're going to throw money into it, but you got to really understand the implications of accepting not only the cost of that money, but I'm not an attorney, but does that also then create a ownership interest coupled with a, I forget the exact, you, I think you know what I'm talking yes, about. Yes, consideration, attorney, right? yeah. Correct, yes, which, which if the operator has an ownership interest coupled with a fiduciary responsibility, right, and for some reason they're not performing and there are you know opportunities to remove the operator, well, guess what? They're still in there as an equity owner, I'm not so sure that that is really the way you want it in in every circumstance. So surprises, I'm coming back to answering your question, this notion about key money, it's one of the first things I always hear, what about key money? Will they give us key money? And just educating folks about what are the implications of, of getting that. And you may be better off, if you need that gap of money, you may be better off finding it elsewhere. Maybe not, it, it all depends. Other than underperformance, where do you, the, what are the most common frictions between a third party manager and an owner? Probably agreeing on budgets. I think that's, that's where there tends to be a, a fair amount of, of friction. And, you know, l- you know, let's face it, that also ties into depending of the, on the structure of the compensation for the operator, right? So th- that's where I tend to see probably the most friction. And then also, you know, determining when certain capital expenditures should actually occur, right? It's very easy to spend somebody else's money, right? And you and I can do that all day long, right? Oh, we need a, we need a, we need a, you know, FF&E refresh. Maybe we don't, you know, maybe we can get another couple of years out of it, or maybe we don't need as an extensive uh, refresh as you would like to have. So there's definitely always friction when it comes to spending capital reserves and funds that are needed above capital reserves. So how do you think about spending dollars in an asset on an ongoing basis? Are you typically yourself or advising people to do like ROI analysis? So, okay, if we renovate this bar, how much more dollars can we generate because we have a nicer, cooler bar versus can we just make it look okay to maintain that revenue? Is it is it that kind of linear black and white or are there more variables involved? I would say generally it's the linear black and white. ROI is really where it's at. Now, you brought up an interesting example. What about if you're looking at HVAC equipment that doesn't have a whole lot more life to it, right? And is a major capital expenditure, right? That's really not going to do anything that the general public is necessarily going to pay for, right? They probably won't even recognize it on the one hand. On the other hand, you know, when you're looking at income-producing real estate, whether it's hotels or office buildings, you're looking at the, the, the concept of durability of income, right? If, if you can't maintain the HVAC in your property, well, guess what? Your income is not going to be durable. So what's the ROI on reinvesting in HVAC? Well, the ROI in part is making that cash flow durable. So it's not necessarily as explicit as what you described, which is, you know, making the bar look better and increasing profits. There's also the notion of maintaining profits. I want to transition to what's coming down the pipe in hospitality because during COVID, everyone was either talking about experiential hospitality, like 
a little glamping thing or an Airstream trailer or a shack in the middle of the woods that people are paying for. And then on the other side, they're talking about limited service, which is basically workforce housing. Focusing on the experiential side, what do you think like what do you think the business plan is for that? Because a lot of those things like people refer to Amangiri, but that was like, you know, an amazing one-time shot, but everyone's using their playbook to try and create their own. And I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about that segment and what you're seeing. So I'm seeing a lot of activity in that experiential segment. I think it tends to cater to folks that are a lot younger than I am. I have tried out glamping once. I'm, I'm glad I did it. I can check the, the box. I do have trouble embracing the notion, irrespective of, of which generation we're talking about, that, okay, once you've done it, is that really something that you're going to do on a continuous basis? Like, oh, yeah, I want to go glamping again? I, I, I don't know. I, I, and yet there seems to be tremendous demand for it. And we are working on, we've worked on and continue to work on a, a whole slew of, we've probably appraised more glamping assets than anybody else in the country at this point. So we really know and understand that sector. It's got very compelling economics. My question is the durability again, right? Is this, is this a phenomenon that is going to endure for the next, you know, 30, 40 years? Or is it just a fad? I don't, I don't really know. What about the economies of scale on those businesses and just the practical matter of operating a resort, if you want to call it that, in the middle of nowhere or, or in a remote location? I mean, the, 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 the economics look phenomenal. I mean, we, we have a really good database on actuals, actual performance of some of these things. And a lot of these locations, the land is not worth a whole lot, right? And if you think about it, right, land value drives fundamental, you know, investment basis, right? Land value in the middle of Manhattan is obviously very, very expensive. Where these things tend to be located, the land is dirt cheap. Then when you look at the airstreams where they can actually be moved around, right, that's another interesting concept that you're not necessarily locked into a specific location. So I think it's too early to tell, I do buy into the notion of experiences that 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 you know the the world has become very focused on experiences and and I don't think that's necessarily going away but but again I I do question whether you know folks that are in their 20s and 30s today that think clamping is cool are going to feel that way 20 years from now when they're in their 50s and 60s I don't know it'll be it'll be interesting to see but listen if if the economics didn't make sense I don't think we'd be seeing as much development in that arena as as we have been seeing. So there must be something to it. Well, it's maybe it's the ego side or maybe it's just the fantasy that you can recreate another Amangiri. One thing that I'm kind of concerned about in that segment is there's a lot of them or some of them that are focused on very, very limited service. So basically, we're going to give you a beautiful setting. You kind of create your own experience but there's no bar, there's no lobby, there's maybe no shared pool, there's no amenities. Are there certain categories in this that you view as more challenged and others that you view as the bigger opportunity? Or is it really all operator location project dependent? It's the latter, those three. You know, you've mentioned Amagiri twice now, maybe three times. Amagiri before they did the the glamping component, was a well-defined, highly successful resort. And so this was sort of an adjunct add-on, bolt-on, if you will, which kind of made a lot of sense because they already had the infrastructure, all those things you talked about, right? The, the restaurants and the bar and, and already had a demonstrated track record for demand to go to that location, which let's face it, that's an offbeat location. So that's a whole different animal, in my humble opinion, compared to if you just decided to do a glamping project where that property is located and had Amangiri not been there previously. That's a, that's a different dynamic. I'm not so sure somebody would, would have necessarily done that. Setting aside the land and, and how pretty it is, 
Are there certain location characteristics that people need to consider if they're thinking about building or developing one of these concepts? Well, sure. I mean, listen, fundamental to real estate, I don't think it's it's ever changed, and I'm not sure it really ever will change. It's location, location, location. There's no question about it. So, you know, lo- location, obviously, you know, access always comes into question. But, you know, listen, there's... There, it, one of the perceived attributes of these types of projects is that they are in hard to get to remote locations. That's one of the positives, right? But you kind of have to look at, okay, well, how difficult is it? And are people willing to to go through the brain damage, if you will? You know, it's interesting. I came across an article earlier today about the cost of going to Burning Man. And I've never been. Uh, I know people <laughs> who have been. But it's, it's an expensive proposition. Yeah. Right. And it's staying there is expensive. To, right. It's difficult to get there. It's, it's, and yet, look, people go year after year after year. I think it's going to be very interesting after what happened this year to see what happens in years going forward, whether folks are going to continue to experience that. Um, but yeah, I think that's a, that's a sort of a great example of before this, this, this year's Burning Man, right? Hard to get to, expensive. And yet the whole experience again, right? And people are willing to not only pay for it, but go through the brain damage of getting to that experience to experience it. People have been talking a lot about the Beyonce effect, the Taylor Swift effect, the fact that these major concerts are such an economic stimulus to these cities. It's almost like in hospitality because of COVID in a lot of these places, you've forgotten about what this major group citywide event can do to hospitality. Can you talk a little bit about these tailwinds that you're seeing and the impacts of whatever you want to call it, city events or big events, what they have on hospitality? The group meeting business is back. There's no question about it. Conventions are back. We are at pre-COVID, if not slightly ahead of COVID levels at this point. You know, the Taylor Swift and Beyonce effect, interesting in that sort of reminds me a little bit of World's Fairs, right? They come for a period of time, right? And then they're gone, right? I'm going to use the term again, durability, right? Sure. You know, there's been measurements of what these events have done to the lodging markets that they're located in, and they clearly had a positive effect, which is great, right? But that's a one-time situation, right? That's They came and they left. So it is interesting on the one hand. On the other hand, if I was looking at buying an asset that the trailing 12 had those numbers baked into it, I, I think you, you probably should figure taking those numbers out on a go-forward look basis because I don't think you're going to get that every single year going forward. Contrary to that, I've actually seen, because we have some hotels in the Miami area and there's been these major events. You've had Super Bowl, F1, And cities like Miami with a huge hotel population, I think tend to get a lot of hype before the event comes, but people underestimate the supply and the shadow supply. And then, you know, everyone's kind of cutting rates if they don't have guaranteed business. How do you think about Airbnb and shadow supply in these bigger markets, New York, Miami, LA? I mean, I don't think there's any question that Airbnb over the last 10 15 years, however long they've been around, has had an impact on the lodging sector, particularly in downtown major urban locations. New York is an interesting example in that there was a a law passed that went into effect this past Tuesday that has effectively eliminated a large population of available Airbnb units. And I candidly believe that what we're going to see is that particularly on compression nights, the pricing power is going to become enhanced for the hotel industry without these available Airbnb units. It'll be interesting to see how this evolves. You know, Airbnb has obviously been a very controversial topic for quite some time. They really haven't been uh, operating on a level playing field. I don't think that this new law necessarily puts them on a level playing field. What it does is sort of eliminate the the supply, right? And pricing of hotel rooms is it's a fundamental supply and demand equation. And so if you remove a lot of supply, and granted, 
Airbnb is, are not hotel rooms, but they it, we know that it does compete with the hotel sector. If you remove that from the equation or a great part of it, on top of what, 5,000, 6,000 rooms that have been permanently removed in the New York market. Now, granted, there are 9,000 rooms that are still on the construction that will open in the near term. But when you look beyond that, again, New York, in order to build a ho- new hotel in New York now, you need a special permit, which ultimately means the hotel has to be union operated. I'm fairly convinced that once these 9,000 rooms come online, we're not going to see new hotel development for quite a while. So between that and Airbnb being muted, I think for existing owners, it's a great time to get into the, the New York market. I'd like to add one more thing. You brought up Miami, and I'm a big fan of Miami. My, I mean, you're down there and you know, the economics speak for themselves, but I do scratch my head every so often about, and I, I don't really understand why climate change is a political issue because I, it's happening. Just look what's going on. And and so I, I do find it interesting, you know, South Florida and all the, not just hospitality, but just all the investment and the interest in South Florida. And yet there are predictions, and I'm not an expert when it comes to this, that Miami could be underwater in, I don't know, 10, 15, 20, 30, who knows, Right. And yet I don't hear many folks really talking about that or even considering it. And maybe it's just, you know, the type of thing that, well, that's 20, 30 years down the line and I'm only going to be in this for three to five years. So I'll let the next guy worry about it type of thing. But I don't know. I think at some point somebody's going to be holding the bag on that. I don't know. Well, it's interesting. There's actually a major transaction on South Beach. It was probably the highest price per key. And I think the first buyer dropped out because they did some analysis and they tried to look at what the lobby would look like on the second floor, assuming that like sea level rose and raise all the streets or whatever. And they ended up walking from the deal because that was a real concern. And then ultimately a REIT bought it. But someone's thinking about it. I don't know that a lot of people are thinking about it like you're indicating. That's not something I'm hearing a lot down here. Neither am I. I, You know, I'm working with another group who's developing a hotel and uh, residential property in West Palm. And I'd asked the sponsor point blank, this is a family office real estate investor. What's your strategy here? And I was told, we want to build it and sell it. And I was like, oh, interesting. And one of the reasons was climate change. Well, we have a hotel in downtown Fort Lauderdale, and eventually it could be waterfront. So maybe I'm signing up for uh, a good long-term investment. There you go. (laughs) So today, if someone gave you $100 million right now at the beginning of this new real estate cycle, how are you deploying that capital if you had to invest in hospitality? Could be whatever you wanted. I'm looking at... Major urban 24-7 downtown markets that used to be the darlings and are now the dogs. New York is not such a dog anymore, right? San Francisco is a dog. I'm a big believer in San Francisco. A lot of folks don't agree with me. Make your point. Why are you a big believer? It's it's a beautiful city. It's a world-class city. It's an economic hub for Asia. Unless San Francisco falls into the ocean. Literally, I just don't see it ending up in this perceived doom loop for an extended period of time. And when I say extended, I'm, again, at the right basis and the willingness to hold on, I believe if you buy at market today and you're ready, willing, and able to hold on for 10 years in San Francisco, I'm not so sure you, you, you can go that wrong. How about this? I don't think you're going to lose money. I think there's a lot more potential upside than there is downside. You know, if you want to double your money, where are you putting that hundred million? Is part of it going into San Francisco? Yeah, I think it's going into San Francisco and other troubled downtown urban markets that have been beaten down. Portland, Seattle. I mean, again, these were these were all New York. I think that, you know these are the places to to be investing. Washington D.C., the major downtown urban markets that again were historically perceived as high barrier to entry, which they still are high barrier to entry markets, but they've suffered significantly because of the pandemic. And it's been a slow go coming back. I don't think you're going to necessarily see opportunities like the Sheraton Times Square come up again, 
at that basis at $200,000 a room. I, I think you may very well see some big box opportunities come up, but, you know, not necessarily at such a compelling story as the Sheraton, because again, that, that happened, was it 18 months ago? And so, you know, COVID was still very much baked into the market, if you will, and, and more front and center than it is today. Now, you know, don't get me wrong. A lot of these major urban markets, including New York, you know, are, are dealing with a lot of challenges, right? The, the homeless situation, the migrants, crime, these are real challenges for, for these downtown urban locations. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a while before, before that gets resolved. But when you just look at the notion of urbanization, urbanization has been around for a long time. I don't believe it's going away. I think there's been a pause in the action. And coming back to your question about where would I deploy my money, that, that, that's candidly where I would go. I mean, sure, a lot of people would say South Florida, right? But that's where everybody's going. I tend to think very contrarian in terms of upside. Not that you can't make money in Miami, but you know, you look at you look at some of the you know some of the numbers that are being you know kicked around. There's there's some healthy numbers being paid for assets in in South Florida, and there could be depending upon the deal, there could be more potential for downside than upside. Whereas again, in downtown urban markets, if you buy at the right basis, how much downside can there be? So that's the answer to my question: 100 million going into major urban markets. I love it. So I ask all the guests on the podcast the same closing question, and that is worldwide, what is your favorite hotel? You can pick more than one. Uh, well, I do have one because I happen to own a place at this hotel, and it's the Four Seasons in Anguilla. Why is it so special? It is a spectacular hotel on a spectacular island. Anguilla, nobody should confuse it with Antigua or Angola or anything like that. Anguilla. <laughs> is a beautiful island that has 33 world-class beaches that are second to none. The Four Seasons straddles two of those beaches, Meads Bay on one side, Barnes Bay on the other side. It was originally developed as a Viceroy Hotel. It ran into trouble, and uh, Starwood Capital ended up buying it and you know, putting Four Seasons in there. I purchased a, a a residence there a couple of years ago, and it's just it's a lovely place. It's a it's a five diamond five star property type of asset that you probably won't see uh, replicated anytime soon. So that's one of my favorite hotels. I'm I'm a little bit jaded too because because I own own a place there, but it's a great and it's place. pretty cool because if you stay there, you can stay in these owned villas, and it's amazing for families. And there are. You do not feel like you're in the Caribbean. I mean, it is the finishes are straight out of California. It's unbelievable. Yeah, it's a spectacular place. Dan, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's great to be with you. Hey, everyone. It's Jake here. Thanks again for joining me on this conversation. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or YouTube. Lastly, don't forget to follow me on Twitter at jwarzak. I'll see you in the next episode. Jake Warzak is the founder and CEO of Dove Hill Capital Management. All opinions expressed by Jake and his guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Dove Hill Capital Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not reflect or represent real estate, financial, or investment advice. <laughs>